From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado, like the U.S. as a whole, is taking in fewer refugees. So who's not making it in? And what does that mean for those already here? We'll also visit a dental clinic in Denver for refugees who were too busy fleeing violence to worry about their teeth. If I had pain, I just use a rod, tie it on my teeth, and just pull it out. Did you get that? She says if a tooth hurt, she pulled it out with a rope. Then, face palm moments on the campaign trail. He is aspiring for the next office. John Hickenlooper from California. And later, van life isn't as glamorous as Instagram might make you believe. Plus, he may have displayed fake arts, let pigeons in. But the strange choices of Adam Lerner made the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver a success. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Global strife will turn 25 million people into refugees this year. 25 million. Some will end up in Colorado, though fewer than in the past. Here's a young woman named Yasi. She was born and raised in a refugee camp in Kenya and now works at a dental clinic in Denver for refugees. I never cared about the, my teeth, how they looked, anything, and... All I had to think about is my safety and where I'm going to be running and if anything to happen. So if I had pain and I just use a rope, tie it on my teeth and just pull it out. If a tooth hurt, she pulled it out with a rope. Yasi's now in college at Metro State. It's fair to say that moving to Colorado changed her life. But it turns out working with refugees changes lives, too. That's what a Denver couple has found. Frank and Carolyn Anello founded Project Worthmore to help refugees. It includes a farm where they learn to grow and sell produce and that dental clinic where Yasi works. And welcome to you both. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Carolyn, I want to start with a revealing detail. What kind of shape are refugees' teeth in? Well, it varies, but a lot of times what we see uh, will be abscesses, uh, extensive decay. Um, Lots of times people come in, they haven't had any uh, preventative care, any treatment in the past, coming in with a lot of fear. Uh, So we get the privilege of um, helping walking people through that fear, um, getting the treatment they need, and getting to see the end result. And it's really gratifying. I hear from my own dentist all the time how much my dental health is linked to my general physical health. And so teeth become a sign, really, of the lives that they've led. Absolutely. Um, You can see, you know, the the trauma of war and uh, just the lack of... um, basic needs. Um, it's it's really eye-opening, but it's absolutely a pleasure to gain trust and to be able to help people through that process. The trust aspect of this is really interesting. How do they feel about coming to the dentist, about being in that vulnerable position? It is a vulnerable pr- position for anyone to be in. Um, you know, it depends on the person. We like to start off easy Um gaining trust with uh, children. It's absolutely an honor to get to see patients that we saw maybe five years ago uh, coming back in. And now they aren't in the condition that they were when we first saw them. Now they're, you know, fixed up and they just need the preventative care. And so that's great. Yasi, as we said, is from Kenya. She speaks several languages, including Swahili, Somali, and a bit of Hindi. Frank, tell us how she's like or unlike the people you work with, uh, where they're from, what languages they speak. Yeah, she represents uh, one of the many 
um, cultures that we work with. Um, what I love about what Project Worthmore does is we uh, we employ from the community, and I feel like that's why at the dental clinic there is such um, a welcoming environment um, for people with the lived experience. As they walk in, they see a familiar face with someone who has gone through the same things that they have gone through, um, and makes, like for Carolyn said, that welcoming environment um, and and giving them an, an opportunity to feel at home. What countries are represented in the clinic, on the farm? Yeah, so on the farm, we have five farmers, two from Somalia and uh, three from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, And in the dental clinic, we have staff from Afghanistan, Djibouti, Sudan, India, um, Burma. And I imagine the, the client base is even bigger than that. Yes. So Project Worthmore started off serving um, mainly refugees from Burma just about 10 years ago. And now we have about 26 different countries that we serve. Language must be an interesting challenge. Yes, language is an interesting challenge. Um, But on our staff, we do have around 20 some languages spoken. I know that teaching English is a big part of Project Worthmore. I wonder how much language is a key to unlocking American culture. Talk to me about that journey a bit. Carolyn? Uh, yes. So, um, first of all, when when you can communicate with somebody, you can hear their story. We can share um, ideas and share uh, just experiences. And when you can't communicate, it's much harder. There, you can. There's body language and all of that. But to actually hear where someone is coming from is absolutely important to understanding American culture and the culture where they came from. Frank, what stories stand out? Yeah, so for me, I would say the very first family that we worked with um, over 10 years ago who came here uh, with a fourth grade education, came here with uh, no English skills whatsoever. Um, Now, 10 years later, they are citizens. They are homeowners. They're business owners. Um, So that's just one of many, many stories that stand out of people that have come here with a drive to be successful and integrate into our communities. Were these Burmese refugees? They were. They were. I want to talk about your own journeys. Ten years ago, Carolyn, you were a dental hygienist in private practice. Frank, you worked at a restaurant. uh, And your church paired you with a refugee family from Burma. What do you remember about that experience, Carolyn? It was super exciting, uh, humbling. Um, At the time, we didn't know anything about Burma. Uh, We met this family. They had just arrived from the airport. Uh, We helped set up their apartment. We made a meal for them that we thought was going to be really good. And later on, we found out they didn't like it at all. (laughs) (laughs) What had you you made them? Well, it was super bland, a rice dish that just, it wasn't very good. Had you tried to cook Burmese cuisine for them? Is that what this was about? We attempted, we assumed that they might want brown rice, but brown rice was absolutely off the table. It needed to be white rice. (laughs) It needed to be white rice. This is part of the learning experience. But the the friendship progressed from there, I gather. It did. Um, I remember the, you know, the first time meeting them, uh, we hung out on their uh, living room floor trying to communicate, um, mostly with just hand signals and body language. And now... Uh, I just had a conversation with the mom on the phone and just realizing that, you know, how far they've come, how far we've come. It's really a beautiful thing to be Mm -hmm. a part of. You went from helping one family through your church to posting flyers looking for volunteers 
to Project Worthmore, uh, which has served thousands of people. And if you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're joined by husband and wife Frank and Carolyn Anello, the founders of Project Worthmore in Metro Denver, which works with refugees. Uh, what, what spoke to you about this work? How do you explain your connection to it, Frank? For me, um, it was instilled in me from my mom. And my mom was someone who always um, dedicated herself to working um, and serving those who were underserved. And growing, being part of the restaurant industry and then being introduced to this family, it gave me an opportunity to, to relive what my mom had instilled in me. And the ability to serve others, uh, Carolyn and I just assumed that we would be traveling overseas um, together as a family to serve and help others in need. But what we realized is that there's really no need to cross the ocean when you can just cross the street to serve those that have come here in search of a new life. And it has completely enriched um, our life together as a family um, when we've been able to have such a huge impact by just responding to what we we call a calling from, from God um, for us to provide our services. What poetry you've just spoken. You don't have to cross an ocean when you can cross a street to help people. But you both left careers, different careers, to do this. Was that nerve-wracking, Carolyn? It was. Uh, when we started the clinic five years ago, um, we started one day a week, then two days a week, three days a week. Then I quit my uh, steady job and, and started doing it full time. And You inherited some hand-me-down dental equipment. Absolutely. Opened the Project Worthmore Clinic for Refugees. Uh, as we said, you hire refugees at the clinic. Yasi works there. Also, a young man named Sahal, he's from Djibouti in the Horn of Africa, uh, where he was a dentist. He works in your clinic while taking classes to get certified to practice here. I'm contributing something on the community since I can help them with translating and working as a dental assistant also. It makes me feel that I'm still in my field. I can do something good for the community as well as I can do something for my own career. What has always stuck with me about refugee stories, Frank, is that uh, they so often have been successful in their native countries. They come to the United States and in some ways they have to start from square one. Do you find that to be true of the folks at Project Worthmore? Absolutely. Um, they are starting fresh um, from the beginning. and um, But they come here with the drive to be successful. The amount of work such as Sahal that he has had to go through to become a dentist from Djibouti to living and studying in Cuba and then making his way here to Denver, Colorado and knowing the hard work that they have to put in and knowing that they will have to start off fresh um, is super exciting for Carolyn and I to be able to have created something to give people opportunity to relive their dreams and to be able to serve those in our community. I'm hearing a theme, which is that refugees in Project Worthmore help other refugees. Is that just a natural assumption that even refugees from very different places in the globe feel some sort of simpatico, Carolyn? I believe so. Uh, when you've experienced um, trauma and and just some hard things in life, I think you can feel more connection with others who you know have experienced that as well. And when you can give back, it's such a feeling of joy inside knowing that um, 
maybe some of the things that you've gone through are not for for not that that you're helping other folks who um, are starting over. So the Trump administration has capped the number of refugees into the U.S. at 30,000 this year. It's a historic low down from 45,000 last year and 70 to 85,000 every year under the Obama administration. Are you at all seeing the impact of that policy? I I wonder if it actually means you can focus your efforts on a smaller community, stretch a dollar. How how do you feel about it in general? Frank, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that, um, yeah, there is an impact, but we can't forget that there is an existing refugee community that has – is existing in Denver, Colorado, 50 to 60,000 refugees that exist and live here. Um, So those numbers of newly arrived refugees are at a historic low, um, but it does, um, it impacts us in a way that our our dental clinic uh, is able to serve those who are already here. Um, Our English classes that were um, we were seeing um, lower numbers or higher numbers. We have more opportunity um, for our for our clients uh, to be a part of the work that we do. Carolyn, would you call that a silver lining of a dark cloud? How do you see the the Trump administration's decisions here? Uh, I don't know if it's really a silver lining um, <laughs> because there really are people in danger, you know, who who need to be resettled mm-hmm. and who are missing out on opportunities right now. Um, mm-hmm. And really what we want is for the administration to bring those numbers up and to allow more people mm-hmm. in. Um, yes, we will always do our work to the best of our ability, mm-hmm. no matter who's coming in, whatever the numbers are. Yep. Um, but when we talk of numbers, those are actual lives. And and that matters. This is a question, of course, of security for the administration, which we'll talk about in just a bit. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you Ryan. so much. Carolyn and Frank Anello are founders of Project Worth More, a Denver nonprofit that supports refugees. And indeed, the U.S. is admitting a historically low number of refugees. Well, the International Rescue Committee, that's an aid group, just did an analysis about what this means for people around the world facing persecution. We're going to talk about that and some other refugee topics with Colorado's Refugee Coordinator, Kit Tainter. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Around the world today, help us understand who is requesting refugee status. I guess put differently, where the greatest need is coming from. Right. So there's about 25 million refugees from around the world. Um, Generally, refugees are fleeing conflicts. When we think about refugee-producing countries, we can think about countries like Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Burma, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Somalia. Um, There is conflict everywhere across the world. And so where there is conflict, we know that there are refugees fleeing for their safety and sanctuary. I wonder if Iraq might come as a surprise to folks. People think, uh, well... Iraq is a part of a of a different chapter, and yet we're still seeing refugees, eh? Yeah, there's still a lot of unrest, if you will, in Iraq and a lot of people who need that individual safety and sanctuary. So potentially um, because of their activities um, in war and in strife in years past, um, they're still threatened on the individual level um, in, in need of safety and sanctuary. So they might not be in Iraq at the moment, but they certainly have fled uh, Iraq um, a decade ago or so um, because of that war and that strife. And we know that people spend years in uh, refugee camps. They may be born born into refugee camps and spend their childhoods there. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, there is a lag in some ways 
uh, that means years or decades for people's lives in limbo. How would you say the current need globally compares to, I don't know, just like a few years ago? So it's been growing. Um, So a couple of years ago, I think the international community was somewhat shocked, and we used language such as this is the largest refugee crisis since the end of World War II. Um, And now we're even exceeding that. So each year, um, as more and more people are born into areas of strife and conflict, as many more people wait, if you will, for a durable solution to the refugee status, that need is just growing and growing and compounding and compounding. Okay, we've heard about people certainly coming to the southern border of the U.S. to claim asylum. I want to be clear that that's different from refugees who request and are granted status while abroad. Just briefly go over the criteria. Like, what does someone abroad have to do to prove that they merit refugee status? Sure. So a number of things. So first, a refugee must prove that they have a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, So they have to prove um, on the individual level or because of the conflict where they fled that they are actually fleeing um, for fear of persecution. Um, And then they have to go through a whole number of different sort of security vetting procedures and things like that um, to prove who they are, to prove where they came from, to prove what made them flee, um, to prove that their family members are their family members. And this is all before they're even considered for resettlement in the United States or other third countries like Canada or Sweden. Wouldn't it be inherently difficult to prove who you are if you had to flee with nothing on you? Absolutely. And so I think that that's one thing that we oftentimes don't know is that the onus is on the individual to prove that they have fled for that well-founded fear of persecution. There's not any assumptions made, for instance, that just because you're fleeing from a country like South Sudan, that you indeed are that person fleeing as a result of that persecution. I mean, one reason the administration has limited the number of refugees from certain countries is to prevent bad actors from coming to the U.S., Can you say for sure that that's not a risk? Refugees are the most vetted class of travelers coming to the United States. So one thing that's really great about the Refugee Resettlement Program, it is a planned and prescribed process in response to a global need. So when folks arrive in the United States through the Refugee Resettlement Program, a lot of that work, and as far as determining whether or not they're fleeing for persecution and determining whether or not they have a history that might be questionable, um, that work has been done overseas before anybody gets on a plane. And so we are able to to mitigate any sort of risk uh, to refugees or to other kind of community members prior to a refugee arriving into Colorado. Colorado's uh, refugee coordinator, Kit Tainter, is my guest. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, Kit, this is fascinating. Along with people from Central and South America claiming asylum at the U.S. border with Mexico, uh, more asylum seekers from Africa are also making their way to the southern border, trying to cross into the U.S., I wonder if that has anything to do with reductions in the number of those being granted refugee status in home countries. Like, might they be trying to get in through a different program? Sure. So, you know, in Colorado, we're resettling about half the number that we normally do um, and way less than what the global need um, would support. Um, So people who are desperate seeking safety and sanctuary for their families are going to try to find um, different sort of means to make sure that they're able to provide for their kids the sort of opportunities and safety they'd like. And so I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing a global need for resettlement, a global need for a response, a global need for a solution. And while folks wait for that need or that solution to be um, resolved, then they're going to do what they need to do to ensure the safety of their families. But here's what's fascinating. If, as the administration has, um, you reduce the number of refugees, you may create more asylum seekers, which is actually a less vetted program, presumably, or, or one that isn't vetted before they arrive on soil. 
Right. So, I mean, I think that, again, like when we when we have a need that's so great, that's 25 million refugees and where one of our response tools that we utilize is the Refugee Resettlement Program. It's not as comprehensive as we need as a global community to respond to what to what we're seeing internationally. And so, again, folks are going to try to figure out, just like all of us would, how do I provide safety, sanctuary and a safe place for my children to sleep tonight? You know, you talked about needing to prove that you are facing persecution, that you're in danger. And I think one argument uh, in in face of those who wish to come to this country is a lot of them are doing so more for economic opportunity than for persecution. Would you weigh in a little bit on the the difference there? Yeah. So again, refugees is a certain class of immigrants. It's very well described both in international law and U.S. law that to be a refugee, you have to be fleeing a certain type of persecution. And again, that well-founded fear. And so that economic reality cannot be the sole driver when it comes to refugees in particular. Correct. Economics cannot be it and climate change cannot be it. So if you're fleeing as a result of a climate crisis, a hurricane, a earthquake, uh, your crops failing as a result of global warming, you also wouldn't be considered a refugee because there's no well-founded fear of persecution. Now, that's fascinating and something we might likely see more of into the future climate refugees. I want to ask you a question that we asked the founders of Project Worthmore, that group that supports refugees, which is that with fewer refugees coming into Colorado, does that mean you can be more generous in a way or spend more time and energy with those who are already here and the fewer that are coming in? Yeah. So even though we're resettling half of what we normally resettle on any given year here in Colorado, there's still over 5,000 refugees eligible for refugee services. And so what we've been able to do with partners like Project Worthmore is really revise our investments, if you will, um, to make sure that we're not only resettling refugees, but we're setting them onto a better path towards success. For us, a lot of that has looked at making sure that refugees are in career pathways that will provide them a more livable wage. Um, so for instance, when refugees get here, they get employed 51 days days after arrival, but oftentimes they're employed in low-wage, low-skilled jobs. So how are jobs you making... Jobs like what? So like uh, food production, mm. uh, maybe overnight security, um, kind of uh, security guards at um, local businesses, but things that might not provide them with the things that they need to really give back to our communities. And so what we're trying to do is meet workforce needs across Colorado by training refugees to, to do things like do construction for the I-70 expansion or to make sure that um, wind-term buying companies have, you know, engineers that are able to help them uh, kind of build their equipment. So we're trying to make sure that we're responding to our growing economy. And we're trying to make sure that refugees are trained and able to get a more livable wage. Kit, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate your perspective. She is Colorado's refugee coordinator, Kit Tainter. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how presidential candidates Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper are preparing for the first big debates this week. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Join me, Anne-Marie Awad, to sift through life after marijuana legalization with a new Colorado Public Radio podcast called On Something. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. On our very first episode, you get the long story short on how weed became legal and illegal and all points in between. Pot was going to destroy the country. Ten years later, it's compassionate to let people use it. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett just wrapped up a busy weekend in South Carolina. Our next candidate comes to us all the way from Colorado, 
He has been a restaurateur. He's been a geologist. He's been a mayor. He's been a governor. And he is aspiring for the next office. John Hickenlooper from California. <laughs> you can hear him say Colorado. That flub may speak to the problems both men have had trying to win the Democratic nomination for president. They're both considered long shots. But they both hope that will change after their debate appearance Thursday in Miami, Florida. With a look at how Colorado's former governor and current U.S. senator are prepping is CPR's Anthony Cotton. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Ryan. Let's begin with what we just heard. What, what What's happening there, that scene that, in South Carolina? It was actually a United States congressman, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. He was the host of an annual fish fry. 21 of the... Tw- of the 23 Democratic candidates were there speaking before a crowd of more than 3,000 people, pretty big group. Uh, he was one out of two, though, when he was announcing where Hickenlooper was from. Uh, both Hickenlooper and Bennett are polling at about 1%. Can they really change things at the debate? Uh, we'll begin by saying that there are only a few candidates, Joe Biden, the former vice president, Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are reaching double figures in most of the polls that have been done. One of the things you kept hearing in South Carolina, though, about Bennett and Hickenlooper was that they're great guys with important things to say, but they they get lost amid all of the other contenders. How was the fish? Fish was okay. It was okay? Yeah. Yeah. I like whitefish. Whitefish. Well, how does the debate perhaps change their standing? Well, ideally for them, something memorable happens, kind of a viral moment, as it were. Bennett had that before he became a candidate, going after Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, on the Senate floor during the government shutdown, the partial government shutdown. Recently, Hickenlooper has been engaged in something of a Twitter beef with Sanders over the idea of socialism. The question is, can they make that moment happen at the debate? This is Hickenlooper's communications director, Lauren Hitt. It's just such a small window of opportunity. There's only at most going to be one person that really hits it out of the park in the debate that's able to sort of get the the break they need to use that line they're preparing or to run that play they've been thinking so there are going to be plenty of people who go up on that stage and just do fine, but don't necessarily distinguish themselves. Senator Bennett joked with me, don't blink or you might miss me on the debate stage. We should say there will be 10 candidates on that stage each night in Florida, Bennett and Hickenlooper Thursday with Biden and Sanders. How are they preparing to stand out? Well, they're doing mock debates and they actually are pretty interesting and pretty intense. Each of them are up on a stage, and they bring in nine other people to play the roles of the other candidates. Then there are five people playing the roles of the moderator, people like Rachel Maddow and Lester Holt. And everyone is expected to be in character. Oh, it's, it's not actually Rachel and Lester, but they're playing They're them. playing the roles, okay. <laughs> and, and they're supposed to stay in character. And it's not just asking a question here or there. They're there for the full two hours, which is how long the debate will be. And that's been happening over and over again. So imagine the commitment that they're asking of these people to do. And of course, at the actual debate, not everything will go as planned and you're not going to get all the airtime that you would like to talk, that you would like to talk about policies and issues. So here's Michael Bennett. That's what I'm trying to do is figure out how to reduce it all down to its essential components. And then, of course, you have to, it's totally unpredictable what's going to actually happen because you don't know what the other people on the stage are going to do and you don't know what the journalists are going to do. So you've got to be 
just very well prepared, I think. Now, this is just the first of a number of debates, Anthony, scheduled over the next couple of months. Is Thursday a make-or-break night for the Colorado candidates, do you think? I don't really think so. As Lauren had said, it's entirely possible that both of them will be absolutely fine, but not really emerge as the guy. And it's also possible, though, that neither of them qualify for those future debates. Mm. The Democratic National Committee is going to raise the standards for what it will take in the future. But for right now, at least, both of them are content to keep plugging away, trying to get their message out there. And Hickenlooper has some interesting big picture perspective about it all. I mean... What's my worst case scenario, right? I love being in South Carolina. I mean, Iowa is filled with some of the most interesting people. I I can't remember meeting a bigger, broader cross-section of humanity than what I've seen in Iowa. And New Hampshire. I mean, New Hampshire is just a special place. So, I mean, my downside is I get to meet just a remarkable, you know, a, a chorus of amazing people that, you know, are asking me and telling me, telling me everything. I mean, I'll be in someone's living room, and within 15 minutes, they'll be telling me their secrets and their wildest dreams. I mean, it's a very, it's funny. People in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, they take it very seriously that they are part of this process to elect the national candidate for, for the Democratic Party. They take it very seriously. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. Sound gathered in South Carolina by my colleague Anthony Cotton. He's following the presidential campaigns of Senator Michael Bennett and former Governor John Hickenlooper. Again, they'll take part in night two of the first Democratic presidential debate in Miami. Each night, Wednesday and Thursday, features 10 candidates and will last two hours. The debate airs on NBC, MSNBC and Telemundo. Have you heard of the van life movement? Maybe you've seen photos on Instagram of mostly young people living in tricked-out vans. For a time, writer Kathleen Morton lived in a 1987 Toyota van with her dog, Peaches. Today, her home is a 1,000-square-foot cabin near Morrison, but she continues to host van life gatherings around the country, and she's co-author of the new book, Van Life Diaries, Finding Freedom on the Open Road. She's also featured in a new documentary film called The Meaning of Van Life. And Kathleen, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Is van life as romantic as it looks in all those Instagram photos? So, I don't really think so. (laughs) Um, I traveled solo for a bit, and like you said, a 1987 Toyota van, it's a really small space, um, about 30 square feet. And even though I had um, some pull-out drawers in the back with my, my fridge and my kitchen set up, it was, still, uh, it was still pretty hard. I didn't have a bathroom in there. I didn't have a shower. And um, you have to kind of make do with the things you have. And so um, things get kind of rough, you know, finding a park spot late at night or, um, you know, being in situations where you might not feel um, safe and relying on strangers. It's interesting. I, I imagine that this might be a very different experience for a single woman. Do you think that's true? Yes and no. I think that the, there's a perception out there that as if you're a solo female traveler, that um, it might be more unsafe than you were as a male. But I think that everyone just needs to practice awareness in any situation and just being mindful of of your surroundings. Um, I found that actually everybody I talked to, they were good people. And after I got into the swing of things of relying on other people for help, it became a lot easier. There's always going to be situations when you're traveling where 
Um, you might feel like um, some uncertainty, like a, during a breakdown, for instance. But that comes, uh, you know, with any gender, if you're a male or a female. Mm. But it sounds like it's also critical to create friendships and uh, be able to take the help of those around you who may also be living the van life. You moved out of your Denver apartment to live in a camper trailer on someone's property. And then for a time, you, you hit the road in the van. What were you searching for? So for me, I did it for environmental reasons. When I was living in an apartment in Denver, I felt like I wasn't being a very good environmental steward. I didn't really think about the waste I was creating. I didn't really think about all the utilities I was using. And so I really wanted to explore how I could reduce my environmental footprint. And so I started a community called Tiny House, Tiny Footprint for that reason. Moved into a 1969 camper trailer, uh, lived mostly off-grid in a family's backyard while I worked a full-time job. And was just really conscious about um, using my waste. And um, I had a composting toilet in there. I didn't really have electricity flowing through and was just trying to be um, just be a little more mindful. How, how has it changed your consumption? I think that living small, you're kind of forced into using less. You have less things. And so you're consuming less. You really you Is really, there something you don't buy today, for instance? There's a lot of things I don't okay. buy today. Um, yeah, I mean, you generally you just don't have the space to buy a lot of things. And especially with my small rig, I didn't have a lot of storage. And so I had to be really conscious of, of what I was consuming. I've given a lot of thought to how the size of my apartment, I think it's 900 some odd square feet, uh, dictates what I consume uh, because I have the space to fill it up. Um, what were your best and worst experiences on the road? Let's start with, where do you want to start, best or worst? Um, best, because okay. most of my experiences were were amazing. The community in van life is really incredible, and you, and you don't really know that until you go to a meetup or a van life gathering. And so through, through Van Life Diaries, for instance, we have all these gatherings that take place throughout the U.S. And, and you see all these other people come together that are living like you. And it's really, it's really incredible because everyone's sharing their passions and including you. And it, um, yeah. I, I also wonder if it just makes it less solitary. I mean, there are families, of course, that are doing this, raising kids in the van life. But can it be isolating? Yes, for sure. Especially as a solo traveler as well. I had a dog, which <laughs> I would highly recommend for anyone anyone who wants to travel and, and this is hit peaches. the road. This is Peaches, okay. yeah. <laughs> My best friend. Um, yeah, so I think it, it's definitely isolating because you are forced into situations where you have to have conversations with yourself. You're in nature, you're off grid. And if anyone's, you know, gone on a backpacking trip, you know that if you don't have your cell phone with you, you don't have those distractions to mm. go through Instagram. And so you have to have those 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 times where you reflect. And those can be really hard because you have deep conversations with yourself that you might not normally have. Well, maybe that's the best and worst part all wrapped into one. What were the conversations like that you had with yourself? What kind of things came up that maybe wouldn't if you had all the noise of a more conventional life? So I think when you're when you're living a lifestyle and you're and you're in nature like that, it can be a little bit rough going back into society sometimes because it's it's really um, comforting to be 
in nature and not have to worry about what other people think about you or, um, you know, do I need to work just to make a living? Those kind of conversations might go away and you can just kind of simply be and do nothing, which we don't really do much uh, in our society. And so I think coming back into a, a busy culture can can be rough sometimes. Uh, so it's that transition that's difficult. That's fascinating. And, and of course, like, who are you if you don't have lots of people to compare yourself to? You know, isn't that what social media is all about for so many of us? There's one couple, Kit Whistler and J.R. Switchgrass, who are featured in both the book Van Life Diaries and the documentary. They've been living full time for the last seven years in a 76 VW bus. I'd like to listen to a clip from the film. Kit talks about what her family thought when she decided to live the van life. Early on, my family thought I had gone off the deep end. They were not happy. My dad actually sat down with me one day and told me that I was a bad return on investment. And he assumed that me choosing to live this way meant that I would never be self-sufficient. It was pretty bad there for a little while. Um, We didn't really talk and, yeah, it was just pretty much cut off. I wasn't really part of the family. Now, Whistler says she has since reached an understanding with her father, but how painful to hear that you weren't worth the return on investment. Do you think Kit's story is typical in terms of how families view this? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that echoes throughout the entire van life community is that a lot of us feel like we're different outsiders from everyone else. Um, My family in particular thought it was a little strange at first when I called them up and I I said, hey, I'm moving into a a camper trailer. I think they thought, you know, are you financially unstable? Like, is there there something wrong that you're not telling us? But it was not about that for you. No, it was definitely not about Mm -hmm. that. And I was still working a a full time job. But um, over time, with the the rise of articles on tiny houses and, and van life, now they're sending me all of those things and saying, oh, look, here's another person doing it or here's this clip. And I'm like, well, <laughs> now that now that it's more um, more popular, I guess, yeah, now it's more accepted. Maybe. You were working a job while you were doing this. How How, how was it to balance those two worlds? It, it was pretty tough for me. And the first couple months were really hard. You know, I don't really want to <laughs> sugarcoat that tiny living is for everybody, uh, navigating a small space and, and going into work. And I also had to look presentable at work. So I had to you know, go to a shower, uh, go to a gym to shower every day and, and kind of go into this different lifestyle than I was living back home. But everybody at work thought that it was pretty neat that I was able to to go back and forth between off-grid living and then, you know, being in modern society. Kathleen, there's a trend I see, and it's essentially middle-class, often white people deciding to live like poor people, almost as a project. You know, I've seen stories about a year without buying anything new, a year with no car, a year without plastic, living in a van. Is van life in, in some ways a reality? that some people don't choose? And and do you have an awareness of that? There's a lot of people that have to live small because they don't have another option. Um, you know, they may be forced out of work or um, that that just might be the only means for them. And so in a lot of ways, I think that van life is, you know, an affordable housing solution for a lot of people. Um, so, and even for me, when I was living in Denver, I was seeing rent costs rising. Yeah. And I, I thought that that was a, a great way that I could also save some money 
and live the way I wanted to live. I guess in just the last few seconds, you said this is becoming more popular. It's perhaps more mainstream. What do you think it says about the world today or, or, the, or the country? I think that people are searching for a freedom. They want to go explore and, and travel and, and see places, and they want to do it now versus later. And so I think in a way, it, it's almost like retiring early in a sense. <laughs> but um, a lot of us are able to work remotely. So we're able to take our jobs on the road. And I think that it's a really um, appealing lifestyle for a lot of people. So it's a reflection, too, of what work is today, I suppose. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Kathleen Morton is the co-author of Van Life Diaries, Finding Freedom on the Open Road. She's also featured in a new documentary called The Meaning of van life. Some strange experiments have taken place at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver. For instance, the museum sent visitors home with pigeons, then had them release the birds. Hi, pigeons! They were homing pigeons, and so they flew back to the museum. This was, of course, for an art project. Then there's the ongoing experiment allowing people to borrow art for their homes for free. Now, both of these took place with Adam Lerner at the helm. He leaves the MCA at the end of the month after a decade there. Hi, Adam. Hi, Ryan. You've taken many risks that paid off, I'll say. Tell me about a flop. Oh, my God, a flop. <laughs> well, you know, I would say this. Um, oh, God, you know, we, we've had so many flops. There's a lot of things that we wanted to do and tried um, that didn't quite work. But I would say that, you know, one thing about the museum is we always have a space where we learn from what we do. I mean, like we tried to do an audio tour for one exhibition that had the lowest like a subscription of any audio tour of, of of our service provider is history. And that was a flop. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, wh- wh- why do you think it was so poorly received? Oh, well, you know what, though? Like, we, we, we tried to um, do something that we didn't quite have the capacity to support. And I felt like that didn't quite, you know, it just didn't quite work. But I was going to say, like, so what? We moved on, and we we have we've had we've had dozens of things like that. I understand that one of the things you're proudest of is teen programming. What's uh, extraordinary about it to you? Oh my God! Well, I am so proud of when I go to the museum on a daily basis, and I see high school kids showing up at the front desk with their friends. They get in for free, and I cannot imagine that we have created this space for high school students to just feel like the museum is their own like hangout place that's amazing to be able to actually change what it means to 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 grow up in 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 denver do you think that the museum of contemporary art had been too stodgy had been too stodgy listen i don't, I don't know i took over just pretty soon after the building opened and it was very clear that um, what we needed to do was to tap into the energy of the growing city. And the way we did that was to be just uh, speak in this very accessible language, to do really, really serious art exhibitions and not take ourselves seriously at all. Mm. When you took the MCA job, Adam Lerner, you were running something called The Lab out in Lakewood. 
That was the Laboratory of Art and Ideas at Belmar. Uh, You founded this cultural think tank museum hybrid in 2004. I remember your logo was a pickle, and there were were like a giant pickle jar in the entryway that you could grab and eat. What were you trying to achieve back at the lab? Well, you know, I feel like the lab was, was kind of like a research for then what we then did at the museum. And I, I want to just make a slight correction sure. here for the record, and that is that we were a lab, and therefore our logo was a lab, a Labrador retriever. Oh, why did I think there was a we pickle? We gave away, we did give away free pickles okay. at openings. <laughs> I guess that that stood out to me so sure. much that I thought it was your logo. Okay, <laughs> No problem. But the idea is that, I mean, this idea of the pickle was, that's it's ridiculous. It's completely impossible to be pretentious, to take yourself too seriously <laughs> if you're like eating a pickle, clearly. And so we thought it was a funny thing to do at our openings. And really, that's been the basis of everything we've done since then. Um, at the Museum of Contemporary Art is how can we be both sophisticated and totally undermine our own pretenses? Your own pretenses. Uh, Well, while you were at the lab, you developed a lecture series called Mixed Taste. Uh, You brought it with you to MCA. And in this series, two experts speak on very different topics like wombats and minimalism or porcini mushrooms and the American ideal. Uh, There was drinking water and Miles Davis. The idea was to find a commonality between these disparate subjects. What connection were you most surprised by in the history of this series? Oh, my God. Um, There's so many. Um, I I feel like, for me, the most interesting connections were, I mean, like between um, Bigfoot and Carl Jung. (laughs) (laughs) What was the the connection drawn? Well, what was amazing is that we realized that actually Carl Jung's idea that we need to have in our society a place of the irrational for the thing that we can't quite explain, oh yeah, that's Bigfoot. Oh, a repository yeah, for things exactly. we can't explain. And I think Bigfoot is, is this sort of mythical creature in our midst that we don't have a rational relationship to. That's exactly what Carl Jung wanted us to have. I learned that from mixed taste. I'll say that the lecture series became a really celebrated program at the museum. It's 20 years old now. The Denver Center took it over a few years ago. Uh, You've said that perhaps your most significant contribution to the museum has been to give it a personality. Do you feel in general that museums lack that? I, I do. I think that museums have a tendency to be to think of themselves a little bit like hospitals, like that we have best practices, we achieve um, certain level standards, and it's all that everyone's working on the same standard. And I think that what I switched with the museum is to try to think of it more like restaurants, where each one has its own sort of personality, its own take. You, you go for different kinds of experiences to different restaurants. That's and I think that's the way our museum has flourished within the the city. It seems to have been successful. Mm -hmm. The Museum of Contemporary Art Denver expects about 115,000 visitors this year, about a 160% increase from 2014. Uh, Adam Lerner, I understand you're currently working on a movie script about your father. He was an Orthodox Jew, survived the Holocaust. Uh, But you also, in the next chapter, want to build something new to showcase local artists. What can you share with us about this? Oh, you know what? Um, what I, I, I want to do is I want to create something in Denver. Um, I don't know yet what it is, okay. honestly, but I feel that um, there's something 
about the air quality around us in the city in Denver and in Colorado that says you can make the world that you want to live in. And I've always thrived on that at the museum, and I want to continue to thrive on that and to and to build something new, drawing upon everything I've done with the museum um, in a yet to be defined way. What an abstract response. But when you say air quality, you're not referring to the brown cloud here. You're talking about the kind of ambiance for artists. There were rumors that you might take a job with Meow Wolf, the kind of, um, I, I'm, I'm always at a loss for words to describe Meow Wolf, the kind of adult art playground. It's opening in Denver. Do you think you'll have a role? Oh, you know what? I'm really supportive of them. I love them. I've never even had a conversation with them about a job. So that's just a rumor. That's just a rumor, a vicious one that we're putting to bed here. Okay. Okay. Uh, what do you think the arts needs in Colorado? Um, you know, the, what artists need, first of all, art, artists don't need anything. Artists will continue to make things no matter what their conditions are. But in a city that's becoming increasingly prosperous, it's becoming more difficult for artists to live and work here and have studios. And so the more we can do to make sure that artists can afford to live in the city, then it, it will help our art scene. Yeah, I think that's a struggle that many communities have. Have you seen a good solution anywhere? You know, there are no good solutions. There are. Okay. So they have, <laughs> they have to be invented as we go. Exactly. Adam, thanks for being with us. I'm thrilled to be here. Adam Lerner steps down as director of MCA Denver at the end of the month. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Matters from CPR News.